turn to Job chapter number six this morning. Job chapter number six. I'm curious. I was uh, uh, we were celebrating a special anniversary uh, a couple uh, weeks ago, and we uh, had decided or realized that just a couple weeks ago was the anniversary of my wife and I going out on our first date here at West Coast Baptist College. Ten years now uh, since we had gone on our first date, which was the luau. Um, who, who else has had a first date at the luau? Let me see your hands. Anyone? Anyone? I mean, uh, we're kindred hearts here, okay? So, and it worked out for us. So if it didn't work out for you at the luau, then there's another luau coming out, okay? But uh, we're, we're just thankful for uh, 10 years now of being in a, a relationship, and we're thankful that we met here at West Coast Baptist College. I was thinking about some of the differences between when we were in college and now, and obviously with a lot of the outdoor classes and the masks and the social distancing, there are a lot of differences, but I wanted to ask you just a few things here that I was wondering about. Is it still the same, basically? Uh, the first thing I wrote down was, uh, is there always a guy still that gets stuck holding the door for everybody? The entire college goes through that door and no one thinks of saying, hey, could I you know, help you out? You know, and uh, I don't know, at least when I was in college, the guy who, who uh, got conveniently stuck at every door. I don't know if he was looking for a date or what, but uh, I was wondering if that was still the same. I also wrote down, is there still that one couple that breaks up like 20 times? And still manages to get back together. I don't know if that's still going on or not. Um, I was wondering, this is more of the question for the guys, uh, do you guys still kind of make jokes about cis call? I'm wondering, because back in my day, I mean, I won't repeat the jokes about cis call, but I mean, it was, it was something, okay, and I, I didn't know if that was still going on or not. Some of you guys are just not even making eye contact, like, ah, let's move on to a different subject. Um, how many of you have heard Dr. Getch's scripture sermon yet? Has he preached that yet? And I think he preaches it about every four years, so everyone gets it. That was one thing that I really enjoyed in college. It was definitely a highlight of chapel. Um, it, are you guys still suffering from senioritis? Does that still go around? Okay, I hear a few. <laughs> All right, very good. By the way, if you have senioritis now, it's November, or it's October, uh, that's going to be a problem, okay? So uh, kind of keep that uh, uh, down a bit, okay? What about men's devos? Um, do we have men's devos still? I remember, Dr. Getch is shaking his head, no. I remember, uh, I mean, it was some ungodly uh, time at night, like 10.15 or 10.30 that we would meet in the North Auditorium. And uh, man, I mean, it would be fiery in there. Uh, I mean, there would be guys running around, waving their Bibles, running laps down the aisles. I mean, we, talk, we were talking about guys standing up on their chairs, waving Bibles. I mean, some of the guys would take their Bible and go like this. Um, I remember one time a guy brought a, a stuffed SpongeBob and was just waving it above his head. When Dr. Getch got up to preach, I think that might be when it got a little bit too far. I don't know, but uh, maybe there's a reason we put a stop to that. I don't know, but that was another great memory of college. My last thing I wrote down is, do you guys still do skits uh, to impersonate the staff in chapel? 
someone needs to get that going again. Uh, I remember when I was in chapel, we had guys who were just spot on. And uh, that was the, now it's still online. I don't know where it is, but you might be able to find it somewhere on Facebook. But the skit where we impersonated the college staff was definitely one of my great memories. I was thinking about being in college and I had used to think that when I was in college, when Alyssa, my wife, was in college, I used to think that that really was the golden age of West Coast Baptist College. I don't even know if I'm allowed to say that or not, but I used to think that. I used to think that, wow, I mean, uh, the dorms were filled and the enrollment was up. And I mean, I thought about what the, the campus bustling and I thought about how, the, God, how God worked in the chapels and how God worked in our student revival services. I remember a student revival um, where we didn't even close the invitation on Friday night and, and people just stayed there for about an hour praying for revival after the service. And I remember Dr. Flanders standing up and preaching in one of our conferences about evangelism. And I remember a lot of the guys in the dorms who were just so passionate about going and seeing souls saved that they came to Dr. Getch and said, we're going to go down to L.A. and we're going to start passing out tracts and we're going to try to start some chapels down there. And I remember Dr. Getch organizing our Game On program. And I remember uh, uh, just the excitement and the fervor that we had to share the gospel and get the gospel out. I remember a men's uh, Devo that we had with Dr. Stensis and as everyone was uh, was dismissed we left the North Auditorium and no one said a word we were so convicted about how we had neglected evangelism in our lives but I'm here to tell you this morning that I don't believe anymore that that was the golden age of West Coast because what you are experiencing right now in college is something that I never experienced in college. What you are experiencing right now is something that God has ordained for this moment for you to be able to be shaken up, to get out of your comfort zone, to have classes outside, to do things differently than we're used to. And I believe that God is preparing right now a golden age for West Coast Baptist College through you because of your spirit and your enthusiasm and your flexibility throughout this time. And I cannot wait to see and to hear of all the things that God is, is doing now and is going to do in the future. Dr. Getch told me yesterday about a group that's meeting for prayer just for revival and not something that's being published. I won't even give the details about it because I don't want to mess it up. But not, it's something that's just not even getting published. But, but it's growing and people are talking about it and people are praying. And let me encourage you, don't be discouraged right now. You might be discouraged because you have a curtain hanging in your dorm room. Okay, you might be discouraged because there's social distancing and I don't even know all of the policies that you guys have to follow right now. But let me tell you, I believe that the golden age of West Coast Baptist College is right now and in the future. So don't give up and don't be discouraged about the things that are going on right now here in the college. Job chapter number six is a passage that I read a couple months ago when uh, a lot of the pandemic had just started. Um, I remember sitting at home. I was working from home at that moment. The college had already dismissed. 
We were unable to have church services. I remember sitting at home and uh, reading through this passage in my devotions, and it really encouraged me, and I hope that it encourages you this morning. We're going to read Job chapter number 6 and verse number 18, and then we're going to give some background uh, in this passage as well. Verse number 18, the Bible says, The paths of their way are turned aside. They go to nothing and perish. The troops of Tima looked. The companies of Sheba waited for them. They were confounded because they had hoped. They came thither and were ashamed. Let's pray. Dear Lord, thank you so much for the opportunity that we have to meet here this morning. We don't take it lightly. We are so thankful that we have the opportunity to open up your word and be able to sit under these tents outside and be able to hear the preaching of your word this morning. And Lord, I pray that you would speak to our hearts. And I pray that you would do an amazing thing in our hearts and in our student body this morning. And we promise to give you all the praise and the glory for it. In Jesus' name, amen. Many of us can relate to Job when he describes in verse number 20 being confounded. Now, I tried to think about a time where I was probably the most confused that I ever was in my life. And I would go back to the event that I just told you about my first date. Okay, I mean, talk about a confusing time. Dating in itself is just a crazy, confusing time. How many of you can attest to that this morning? Now, I remember that uh, I was so confused. My freshman year, I was just striking out. I mean, I, I would ask this girl uh, out on a dating activity, and she would say she was busy, and then I decided I would go with my friends, and there she was going out with another guy. Yeah, talk about confusing. I, I would ask another girl out, and she would say that she was busy, and I'd be like, okay, all right, you know. And, and then maybe the next week I asked her again to something else, and she would say she was busy again. It's a very busy girl. Eventually I, I got the hint. But eventually, my sophomore year, I found my wife-to-be, Alyssa, and she was working in the kitchen uh, at that time. And I remember that I went up to the, the window that's in the kitchen where they wash the dishes between the kitchen and the gym. And, and I was there dropping my plates off. And, and I, I was so determined. I mean, I was so nervous. And I was going to ask her to the luau. And I stood there at the window and I said, hello, would you go to the luau with me? And she said, yes. And I said, what? Now, we kind of joke, if you've ever worked in the kitchen, when you're cleaning dishes right there, it's very hard to hear. And so we've often joked that she just didn't even hear what I said. She was just going, yeah. But she, I think she did hear what I said. And so we, we decided we would go out on this luau, and we didn't really know each other. I was friends with her brother, but that was about it. And so, uh, unfortunately, Student Revival, which is what I led uh, as a student event, uh, we had the student revival the night before the luau. And so um, she didn't really understand all of this, but I mean, all the work that I put into student revival, and I didn't really have her number. Um, this is kind of before Facebook Messenger and all of this. I mean, you guys have it so easy right now, but I didn't even have her number. I didn't even have any way of communicating with her. And guess what? She was getting frustrated. She was getting very frustrated because I had, hadn't communicated anything to her. I just thought, well, she said yes, and so we're going to go. That's it. So eventually Saturday morning I figured out that maybe I need to uh, communicate to her at least when I'm going to pick her up. 
okay, that, that might be a good thing. And so I ran around this campus trying to find her brother's number, her number. I mean, I was trying to find some way of communicating with her. Finally, I did, but she did not want to go with me anymore because she was so upset. So her brother famously says to her, just go with him one time and it'll be done. Because little did she know. <laughs> so she goes to the luau with me. We had a great time. I mean, I was just so excited. It was awesome. We had a great time together. She goes back to her dorm and says, well, you know, I, I, I guess I, that was fun, but I don't think I'll go out with him again. I go back to my dorm, and I mean, I am on cloud nine. I mean, I am just so excited. I'm thinking about when's the next dating activity, and actually the next dating activity was the next week. We were watching the classic film Sheffy. Talk about a wonderful dating activity. Very romantic movie. But I figured, I'm evangelism major. She should probably watch this movie anyway with me. And uh, so we, I went and I tried to find her. And I think she was trying to avoid me because I was looking everywhere for her that week. I could not find her. Eventually, this is not stalker status, okay? But eventually, I sat outside the picnic tables of her dorm in Lori and waited for three hours for her to walk by. Finally, she walked by. I mean, you could ask Jesse Jones. He came by and talked to me, and I was like, Jesse, I'm a little busy right now, okay? <laughs> I was there for three hours waiting for her to walk into her dorm, and finally she came, and so I decided that I would ask her to Sheffy, and she said, mm, let me think about it. <sighs> not good, not good. So eventually the next day I went and I found her again. She was working in the kitchen again. At least I knew she was there. And so I went to the kitchen and I, I asked her again, have you thought about it? Would you like to go to Sheffy with me? And she said, yes, but I'm going to bring my roommate. Talk about confusing. So I go back to my dorm and guys who literally are not married still are telling me that this is a bad, this is a bad thing to do, okay? He's, they're, they're telling me, I mean, if, if she's bringing her roommate, then it is over, man. I mean, you might as well just give up right now. But amazingly enough, that second date, she started to realize that I was such a nice guy, and she decided that she would continue to date me. I'm telling you what, though. When you're in the middle of something like that, you got people over here telling you one thing. You got friends over there telling the girl something else. I mean, you got people who are just all trying to tell you their opinion. And you get so confused. And Job in this passage is saying, I am confused. But he uses a different word. And this word goes a little bit deeper than just the meaning of confused. He uses the word confounded. Now, confounded comes from a Hebrew word, which is basically the combination of two words, which would be confused, which we've already talked about, but it's also going a bit further. It's translated more as ashamed. So if you study this Hebrew word, it, it pops up a lot in the book of Psalms. It pops up a lot in the book of Isaiah as the authors are trying to communicate their emotion. And it's mostly translated ashamed. So Job says, I am so confused that it is a burden on my heart. 
that I am ashamed at what is happening in my life. He is depressed. He is discouraged. Job, if you know the story, is so low at this point. He says, I am confounded. Now, most messages about the book of Job, you're going to find, are from the first two chapters, the narrative part of the story. And yet, this whole book has 35 chapters of poetry, and oftentimes we avoid these chapters because, honestly, they are, there's some very, very rich language in here. There's some very, very deep thoughts. There is some deep Hebrew poetry in these chapters. And right here in this chapter, Job is giving his response to his first friend, who, even if you want to call him a friend, I don't know, but his first friend, Eliphaz, who comes and basically tells Job that all of these bad things are happening in his life because he is a sinner and because God is sending his judgment on him, and Job is giving him his first response. Job ends up arguing with his three friends in three different cycles. Eventually, Elihu shows up, the young guy, and tries to bring a little bit of clarity to the situation, but we see here in this passage in Job chapter 6 that Job is confounded at his friends. He's saying, guys, you're my friends. You're supposed to be encouraging me right now. He's confounded at his circumstances. He doesn't understand why all these things are going on in his life. He's confounded at God himself. He does not understand why these events are happening in his life. And I think we can all relate to that this morning. Whether it's something that's happening personally in your life or whether it's what's going on corporately or nationally or internationally, we have all come to the point in the last six months where we have been confounded. It's like we're trying to kick against this wall and we're not able to do what we feel like we should be able to do, whether that's ministry, whether that's in our lives. There are frustrations. And though I don't think that we have suffered as much as Job has suffered here in this book, we can still relate to him and we can relate to his being confounded. So very quickly, uh, Job, to communicate his emotions, tells a short parable. This parable is set in the middle of the desert, and we're very familiar with that, especially sitting outside this morning. So very quickly, let's discuss three characters of Job's parable and what they teach us. Three characters out of Job's parable and what they teach us. The first character isn't really a person, but it's really what starts the story off. We find the creek, the creek. Look at verse number 15, verse number 15 of Job chapter number 6. The Bible says, my brethren have dealt deceitfully as a brook, and as the stream of brooks they pass away, which are blackish by reason of the ice and wherein the snow is hid. What time they wax warm, they vanish. When it is hot, they are consumed out of their place. We meet the first character this morning, the creek. Now, Job is very familiar with these creeks that ran through the desert. They were called Wadi in the Arabian Desert. And still today, there are seasonal streams that flow through the Arabian Desert and that dry up very often throughout the heat. We would call them out here in the American West a wash or a gully. Um, if you've ever uh, driven north from the 14 and you've ever driven up here to campus on the 14 north, you're going to look to your right and you're going to see in Santa Clarita area a wash. It is actually called the Santa Clara River. You're going to see that river, but it's not the river that you think of. It's an underground river. 
The river provides water to almost the entire town of Santa Clarita, but you will not see that river because it's underground and it looks dried up. It looks like a dry riverbed. So Job is describing this creek. He's describing a dry bed of a stream that only flows during the rainy season. Now, if you think about this dry riverbed that's down in Santa Clarita, I've tried to figure out when was the last time that there was even water that was flowing on top of this river. And the last time that I could find that someone recorded there was water there was in 1769. And it was an explorer who said that there was water flowing underground during the day, but there was water flowing overground at night during the cool temperatures. And so Job is very familiar with these creeks. He knows that they are unreliable. He knows that if you're traveling through the desert, especially the Arabian desert, that you do not need to rely on these creeks, these wadi, these washes that are flowing at one moment and not flowing at the next moment. And he uses this creek as an image to describe his friends. He says, friends, when you are supposed to be gushing full of water, of encouragement, he says, you have dried up. You have not done what you should have done as a friend. You see, the creek will always dry up. Psalm 118, verse number eight says, it is better to trust in the Lord than to put confidence in man. Proverbs 25, verse number 19 says, confidence in an unfaithful man in a time of trouble is like a broken tooth and a foot out of joint. The creek teaches us that circumstances and people will change. Proverbs 27, one tells us, boast not thyself of tomorrow for thou knowest not what a day may bring forth the question is this morning is there a creek in your life that you are placing too much confidence in if there is a creek in your life whether that's a person whether that's a place whether that's a circumstance if there is a creek in your life that is not named jesus christ then that creek is going to eventually dry up we do not put our faith we do not put our confidence in people or places or circumstances, we put our confidence in our Savior, Jesus Christ. An architect or an engineer will tell you, never build on a wash. It's unsafe. You never know when the ice is going to melt from the mountain. You never know when the rains are going to come and the floods are going to come. In Matthew chapter number 7, verse 26, Jesus tells us, And everyone that heareth these sayings of mine and doeth them shall be likened unto a foolish man which built his house upon the sand. And the rain descended and the floods came and the winds blew and beat upon that house. And it fell and great was the fall of it. Don't put your confidence in people. Don't put your confidence in your mentors. Don't put your confidence in your heroes. Don't put your confidence in your friends. Don't put your confidence in your family. They will fail you. We are all sinners. We are all imperfect. Do not build on the creek. It will dry up. My hope is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness. So the creek will dry. Secondly, we meet our second character this morning. We meet the caravan. Verse number 18. The paths of their way are turned aside. They go to nothing and perish. Job describes in his parable an ancient caravan traveling through the desert. Now, obviously, Job and his friends and, and, and his readers are going to be more familiar with a caravan during that day. So let me give you a little bit of a description of what Job is talking about here. 
Caravans traveled together through the desert, mostly for protection from robbers. They knew that there was protection in numbers, and so they would travel through the desert together to protect themselves from danger. They would pack their camels with different supplies and merchandise. Sometimes they would pack up to a thousand pounds on top of one camel to get through the desert. Camels would be strung together with rope in groups of 40. 40 camels in a straight line with rope that are going through their bridles to keep them all together. We see that they would travel a familiar route. There would be thousands of people and thousands of camels traveling in one caravan across the desert. They would travel this route with a leader who would appoint a guide or an assistant, and they called him a Delil. The Delil was responsible for one thing. He was responsible to help them through the perilous desert. He would be someone who was trained by his father, who was a Delil as well. And his father, at an early age, would teach him the routes and teach him the the different places in the desert, the landmarks to follow throughout this desert for the safety of the people. This Delil was so familiar with the desert that he would be the one that everyone would follow for their safety. Caravans would often travel 30 to 40 miles per day in the scorching heat through the desert. But Job describes in this parable an event that was very unusual. He describes an event where the caravan splits up. Now, Job doesn't tell us what the Delil was telling them to do. I would assume that the Delil wanted to stay on the familiar route. That was his way of getting to the next place. But somewhere along the line, there are people who turn aside. There are people who think that they know more than the guide, and they split up from the main group. Why? They think that they know where this creek is. We've already talked about the creek. They think that they know where this wash is, where they're going to be able to find an oasis, and they're going to be able to find water. And maybe they're thirsty, and they're forgetting that the guy knows what's going on, and he knows where the next creek is. But they say, they get all together, and they say, no, we're going to turn aside. I know there's a creek down there. And as they turn aside and they go to this creek, they find that it's dried up. And in the same verse, Job describes that they turned aside, but they go to nothing. There's nothing there. By this time, it's too late. They can't find the rest of the caravan. They're not on a familiar route. They're not on any trade routes through the desert anymore. And sadly, the last two words of this verse tell us that they perish. They perish from the dehydration throughout the desert. Job uses this caravan to describe himself. Remember the creek are his friends. He says, I'm the caravan. I'm the one who thought that you would give me help and you would give me encouragement. But now I am dried up. Now I have departed. I have wrongfully placed my confidence in my friends. The caravans are those in this parable who put their trust in the creek. When they should be trusting in the fountain of living waters. Jeremiah 17, 13. O Lord, the hope of Israel, all that forsake thee shall be ashamed. And they that depart from me shall be written in the earth. Because they have forsaken the Lord, the fountain of living waters. I believe this is a vivid picture of sin in our lives. James chapter 1 verse number 13 tells us, but every man is tempted. He is drawn away by his own lust. These caravans are drawn away. They're thirsty. They're tired. They think that they can find what they need out in the middle of the desert. They're putting their their confidence, they're putting their faith in the wrong place. And the Bible says 
they are enticed. Then when lust hath conceived, it bringeth forth sin, and sin, when it is finished, bringeth forth death. God has a path for all of us to follow. What we need to remember is don't turn aside for the lust of the world. Don't turn aside from that path. Don't turn aside for the praises of men. Don't turn aside for personal ambition. Don't turn aside because of the unkindness of others. Follow the path that God has revealed to you and stick with it. Now, can I just be honest with you this morning? We're family here. So let me tell you this. I'm just thinking from my personal, uh, my personal experience. I have seen way too many of my generation turn aside. I've seen way too many of the people that I know turning aside to different things and not staying on the path that they were trained to take. Now, when I say turn aside, let me be very clear, because I know as preachers, a lot of times we like to be very vague and we like to throw out things, you know, and, and, and we, we try to find a little cliche that we can throw out, you know, that everyone can remember. But everyone takes it at a different time, so, or a different way. So let me be clear of what I'm talking about here. Turning aside is not idolize. I'm not talking about idolizing the past. OK, we know we shouldn't do that. I'm not talking about some type of an old paths of a culture from 50 years ago. That's not what I'm talking about. I'm not talking about uh, understanding our current culture and how to get the gospel out effectively. That's not turning aside. But there's, there's a generation that is turning aside from what they have been trained to do. Now, let me be very clear. I am so thankful for my fellow graduates of West Coast Baptist College, the majority of who are following God with all of their heart, the majority of who are winning souls, the majority of who have been faithful to what they have been trained to do. And I trust that we use this term politically a lot, the silent majority. I believe there is a silent majority of West Coast Baptist College students who are being faithful to God who, who have not turned aside. Don't be discouraged by the ones who have turned aside and they're the most vocal and they're the loudest. And they're the ones that are trying to try to get you to turn aside as well. Don't listen to those. Follow the pastor uh, in the middle of Nebraska who's faithfully serving God. And though he may not have a blog and, they, and though he may not even do social media, he is being faithful to God. He's staying faithful to what he was trained here at West Coast Baptist College to do. So I'm not talking about the majority of my generation, but I do see in my generation a a desire to turn aside, and it baffles me. Now, I'm speaking of turning aside from three different things. There's three different applications to this. Number one, I've seen people turn aside from the faith. I mean, completely turning their back on Christ. I've seen people, not necessarily graduates of West Coast Baptist College, thankfully, but I think when I was in a youth group, I had friends who wanted to be a preacher. Uh, I had friends who wanted to go into the ministry. I had friends who preached in our popcorn contest who are atheists today. There are people who did, are not grounded, and they turn aside because of the lust of the flesh, and now they're completely against the cause of Christ, and they're almost militant about it. So there are those people who turn their back on the faith completely. But there are also the people who not only turn their back on, or they're not turning the back on their faith, but they are compromising doctrine. Now, I remember back when I was in practical theology, I could remember it so vividly. Pastor Chapel sharing this illustration. 
Do you remember as I tell it, he talked about the fundamentalist right here on the platform. I can visualize it in my mind right now. The fundamentalist. And what does the fundamentalist do? Who can tell me? Who's heard this illustration before? With truth, what does he do? Does he stand for truth? <laughs> yeah, he does. Okay, he stands for truth, okay? So the fundamentalist stands for truth. On the other side of the platform right here, you've got the modernist. You've got the liberal. And what does he do? Come on, you guys know it. He denies the truth, right? So we're talking about early 1900s. Modernism comes into America. It's from Germany and from Europe. And, and uh, all these guys are trying to deny that the Bible is the true word of God. They're, indying, they're, they're denying the infallibility. They're denying that Jesus is the son of God. They're denying all of the miracles of the Bible. I mean, you've got all these liberal people who are probably not even saved because they don't believe in Jesus as the son of God. So they're over here in the modernist camp, in the liberal camp. And then you have these guys like Ari Tori who stood up against those men who wrote a volume called The Fundamentals to help everyone understand that this is what we believe from the Bible. We're going to stand in the Bible. But then you got this middle section here. This is kind of like the gray area. Okay. Who stands here? You remember the illustration? The new evangelical, right? And I can remember pastor standing up and saying, the new evangelical, he doesn't deny truth, he doesn't stand for truth, he compromises truth. That's what the new evangelical does. Now, to be honest, we, I haven't really heard the term new evangelical very often, okay? Uh, that's not a very popular term anymore, and I can't even list all of the terms that we're talking about here, but we're talking about the person who compromises the truth. They are not denying the Bible, but they're not standing for it either. They want everyone to get together and to talk about it and let's all be friends and let's all get together and we can have this liberal guy over here speak in my pulpit and, and we can do all of this stuff together because it really doesn't matter. That's what the new evangelical does. And again, I don't know what their term now today, but there's a ton of terms that fall under this category. What my generation has struggled with is not the liberal over here. We know we're not going to deny the word of God. But we're also kind of, we're kind of put off, to be honest, by some of the fundamentalists who are just so angry all the time, okay? That's where we are. And I'm not saying all fundamentalists are angry. That's not what I'm saying. I'm a fundamentalist. I believe in what we have been trained here at West Coast Baptist College. So don't, don't say that I'm being too critical, but I think we could all be honest that there are some fringe fundamentalists who are just too angry. So we got over here, that what is my generation going to do? Well... Most of us, unfortunately, decide to go in the middle again. And we decide to go to this camp that is not denying the word of God. We would never do that. But we're compromising it. How is that? Well, we always hear doctrine, 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 doctrine. And that's true. We should all look at the doctrine. But guys, be very careful. Because you look at these, these middle guys. You look at their doctrinal statement online. I've looked at them. I've read them. They're right. That's what gets confusing to me, and that's what gets confusing to my generation because we're so focused on doctrine being right that when we see these new evangelicals here, I read their doctrinal statement, I say amen to it. But when you really delve into their doctrinal statement, number one, they're simple, and uh, I'm not against being simple because I'm a children's pastor. I have to make things simple all the time. But what is wrong with it is they're not very specific. You know why? Because they want to get everyone together. So they're saying, 
everything they say I agree with. So when I'm over here, bless God, I'm a fundamentalist, and we got this angry fundamentalist over here just keeps yelling in my face, I'm like, okay, well, I guess I can go over here. They believe the same thing, right? I've read their doctrinal statement. They're fine. They may do a couple things differently, but it's okay. And this is the slippery slope. This is the turning aside that my generation has fallen into countless times over and over and over again. So what I am telling you is don't turn aside by compromising the doctrine of the word of God. Don't turn aside by starting to hang out and listening to these groups that, yes, they may say a lot of really good things that we agree with, but you need to think about number three, not just the, the denying the faith, not just compromising the word of God, but I also see people turning aside from the practice. Now, how many of you know your Baptist distinctives? Okay, letter B. Bible is all is the only authority, the sole authority for faith, and <laughs> there you go. I know you guys are awake. Faith and practice. So not only do we have guys who completely turn their back on the faith, we also have guys who are compromising doctrine, mingling with all these other guys, and then we have guys who are denying or compromising the practice. Guys, just because something is not in a doctrinal statement of a church doesn't mean it's non-essential. Let me say that again. Just because it's not in a doctrinal statement of a church doesn't mean it's non-essential. That's where my generation gets messed up with. We think that the doctrine is, uh, doctrine, their doctrine is great, their doctrine is good, they believe Jesus is the Son of God, they believe the Bible is the Word of God, all of this stuff, da, 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 da. they're good, right? No. You've got to think about their practice, too. Because not only do we look at their faith, but we look at their practice. What are they doing? The Bible tells us that faith without works is dead, right? So if we are so focused on people's faith and they got good faith, I'm not saying these guys aren't Christians. They got good faith, but they're not practicing what the Bible says. They're not practicing what we traditionally hold to as Baptists. Now, guys, don't get worried. I know, I know millennials get, get so worried about this word tra tra uh, the tradition, okay? We're like, ah, no, stay away. I don't want tradition, right? We're, we're so scared of that word. Guys, tradition is okay. We're not Catholics. We don't believe that tradition is something we have to follow to get to heaven. But there are certain things as a Baptist that we traditionally follow, and it's something that we can't turn aside from. It's something that our forefathers have fought for. Guys, I'm amazed by the stories of Christians who, Baptists in the Middle Ages, who died because they would not sprinkle their baby. New evangelicals would say, ah, that's a non-essential. Just do it. Just do it. Just compromise. It's going to be fine. You can accomplish more for God if you just compromise in this area. And yet those men were drowned in a river. Because they would not compromise. I'm not saying it's a tradition, but it's part of the word of God. It's not in every doctrinal statement. I mean, you've got to think about, you know, theology and bibliology and pneumatology and Christology. It's, it's not in that list, but guys, it's important, right? It's a practice from the word of God. I know that's a little bit of an uh, over-the-top example because I don't think anyone's killing anyone for baptizing people today. 
But there are so many other examples today in our culture that we have to hold true, not just to the faith, not just to the doctrine of the word of God, that doctrinal statement that you have to defend in orals, but also the practices. Guys, I am so amazed by the blatant disrespect of my generation to many who have gone before us who have fought battles and who have made hard decisions and who have decided that they're going to practice something. And we just say, well, why? Why can't we do like this? Why, why can't we just change this? Why, why can't we just reinvent the wheel? Guys, that's not what our generation is supposed to be doing. We're supposed to be learning from the past generation. And yes, they made mistakes and we can learn from those mistakes, but we have to be able to go forward and not turn aside, not die in the desert because we have gone off to look for the creek that's not there. Guys, there's people in fundamentalism who are going over to the new evangelicals for one reason. It's because some fundamentalists hurt them. And guys, listen very carefully. I hate to tell you, but when your foundation is in the dry creek, someone's going to hurt you. And when someone hurts you, we, okay, this is amazing to me. My generation cries and runs over to the new evangelicals and says, can you please take care of me? I've been so hurt. Guys, there's bad people on that side too. Guys, listen very carefully. My, my past generation, I'm talking about my parents, my in-laws, people like that. When something happened that hurt them and they knew that it was time to move or it was time to do something, a big change, they would go and they would say, what ministry or what church am I going to go to next? Okay, pretty simple. They knew that they had a calling and they would say, well, I guess it didn't work out here. I'm going to fast. I'm going to pray. I'm going to wonder if this is time to go. But if it's time to go... I'm going to go to another church and serve. I'm going to go to another ministry and, and do something else for God. My generation gets hurt. I mean, literally, I, forgive me for being too specific, but one or two years in the ministry and you get hurt. And what do we do? We go to, we say, forget this. I'm going to go to the new evangelical. I'm going to go work at Burger King. I'm going to go just forget all this fundamentalism stuff because they're mean and they're harsh and this guy hurt me and now I'm going to leave everything. And guys, if it hasn't happened to you yet, it will. There's going to be someone who hurts you and there's going to be someone who dislikes you and there's going to be someone who chews you out and you're going to think your pride's going to well up and think, ah, it's time for me to go. I'm going to try. It looks like everyone's so happy over here all the time. They're just so free. I'm going to go over here and try it out. Or, man, it looks like Burger King is hiring. Maybe I should just do that. Guys, you spent four years at Bible college to work at Burger King. What a shame. I'm telling you, it's going to happen. You're going to be tempted to turn aside. I hope it's not against the faith. But some will. I hope it's not compromising doctrine. And I hope it's not turning away from our Baptist practices, our, our fundamental beliefs, just because we got hurt. Guys, I'm not, I'm not saying that, I, I'm not minimizing hurt. I'm not saying that this is something that we should uh, just make fun of. When we're hurt, it's serious. But don't let it change your calling. Don't let it change your doctrine. Don't turn aside. Well, I got on a little rabbit trail right there. So number three, and we'll be done. The third character in this story, 
This is a mysterious, unidentified third party in verse number 19 who shows up on the scene. Now remember, Job chapter 6, verse number 18, this caravan perishes. But look at verse number 19. The troops of Tema looked, and the companies of Sheba waited for them. They were confounded because they had hoped. They came thither and were ashamed. So not only do we understand that the creek, the creek will dry up, and the, the caravans, they're going to depart. But lastly, the companies are going to discern. There are companies, remember that main part of the caravan that stayed on the route? They're looking. I wonder where those, those other caravans went. I wonder if they're going to come back. They're watching. Tima and Sheba are watching. They're confounded because they had hoped. And they're ashamed because their friends are lost. Guys, what do we do when all of this happens, when we're confounded? Well, very quickly, let me tell you this and we'll be done. Chapter number seven tells us what to do when we're confounded. What do we do when that creek dries up? What do we do when those caravans depart? Well, number one, it helps us discern our purpose. Look at verse number one. Is there an appointed time to man upon earth? Are not his days, oh, the wind, <laughs> are not his days also like the days of a hireling? As a servant earnestly desireth the shadow, and as an hireling looketh for the reward of his work. These times of confounding are there for, so that you can discern your purpose, so that you can become stronger in your purpose. He talks about a hireling. He talks about the shadow. The shadow is what the hireling watched. I'm the servant. I'm watching the shadow getting bigger so I can get my paycheck at the end of the day, so I can get my reward at the end of the day. And guys, we're watching the shadow getting bigger on this earth, and Jesus is coming back to give us our reward. And instead of getting discouraged and confounded at the creeks drying up and the caravans departing, we should be in the company that discerns and the company that grows stronger in the purpose that God has given to us. Secondly, to serve your, discern your perspective. Look at verse number seven. Oh, remember that my life is wind. Mine eye shall no more see good. Discern your perspective. My purpose is going to get greater. But I'm also going to discern that I'm not here on this earth for my whole life. So I want to use this time as a time to grow closer to the Lord and have a heavenly and eternal perspective. My greatest fear in my life is at the end of my life that I will realize that I missed what God had for me to do and it's going to be too late. And every day of my life, that is my greatest fear that God has given me a job to do on this earth and that if I get to the end of my life, I get distracted right now and I get to the end of my life, I'm going, it's going to be too late. It's going to be done. And I'm going to be confounded and I'm going to be ashamed because of it. Right now, make sure you have the right perspective. Thirdly, verse number 17. What is man that thou shouldest magnify him and that thou shouldest set thine heart upon him and that thou shouldest visit him every morning? And try him every moment. Discern your place. These are beautiful verses. We don't have time to get into it. But there's a place of humility. There's a place of love. There's a place of mercy. And there's a place of trials. All described in these two verses. Understand and discern the place that you have from God. Lastly, discern your priorities. Look at verse number 20. I have sinned. What shall I do unto thee, O thou preserver of men? Why hast thou set me as a mark against thee, so that I am burdened to myself? 
Never waste a time of confounding by not examining your spiritual life and seeing if there's sin involved. Job himself says, I've sinned. I need to get right with God too. I need to discern my priorities. Guys, turn over to Romans 5, 5 and we'll be done. Romans 5, 5. Why were these companies confounded? Well, verse 20 tells us because they had hope. So what are you saying, Brother Nathan? Are you saying that you should not have hope? Come on, we got to have hope in our lives. So why? They're confounded because they had hope. Romans 5, 5 tells us the answer. And hope maketh not ashamed. There's that word again, ashamed, confounded. Because the love of God is shed abroad in our hearts by the Holy Ghost, which is given unto us. The reason that we are confounded is because our hope is placed in the wrong foundation. Don't put your hope in the creek. People are going to fail you. Don't put your hope in the caravans. They're going to turn aside. Put your hope in Christ, and you'll be able to be faithful to him. Let's pray. Dear Lord, thank you so much for this vivid parable from Job, hidden in, in so much rich poetry and rich language that many of us have just read through it without thinking about it. But Lord, I pray that you would give us a college. I pray that you would give us students with the hearts that they will not put their faith in the creek that's going to dry up. And they're not going to put their faith in caravans that are departing the faith and compromising doctrine and practice. But they're going to put their faith, their confidence, and their hope in you. God, if